<clears throat> well, thanks, Sarah Beth, and good morning, everybody. 10 o'clock service, it's good to see you guys. I hope you had a great Christmas. I uh, got a chance to spend with the family, and hopefully you ate a lot of food. I know that's what I did, and uh, it was great. And guess what time my kids got up on Christmas morning? This is wild, all right? How many of you guys think maybe 6 o'clock, just a show of hands? 7 o'clock, show of hands. 8 o'clock, show of hands. My kids got up at 10 o'clock a.m. It was awesome. I actually wanted to go wake them up. That's, that's, that's how, that was, it was a good, good holiday. But I hope you guys had a great Christmas, and I know that right now Christmas is starting to sort of wind down a little bit, and um, maybe a couple more Christmas parties left this week for a few of us, and maybe a little bit more shopping, you know, post-holiday sales and things like that, starting to take down the decorations. Just out of curiosity, how many of you right now already have your Christmas decorations down? Show of hands, how many of you guys do that? All right, you're the overachievers, so love you guys, that's fantastic. And, uh, and good stuff. But as the season winds down, um, this series that we've been in, which is kind of our Christmas series, we're also winding that down. And so this week is our last week in U Plus Hope as we're kind of going through uh, and talking a little bit about Christmas. I will say this is the last week in this series. Next week, we're not going to be starting a new series. We're actually going to be doing a standalone message that we call the State of the Church. We do this once a year. And Sarah Beth had mentioned this, but let me just encourage you that if you're a part of the Medina East family, if you call this home, you don't want to miss next week because uh, we're going to kind of look back at this, uh, at this last year, 2014. We're going to recap kind of the highlight reel, talk about some of the things that we've seen God do and uh, some of the great things that this past year has held. Then we're also going to look towards uh, the next year and talk about what to expect, what to anticipate, some of the things that we're praying for um, in this next year, 2015. And so that's always a great time for us to kind of recalibrate as a church sort of sync back up, talk a little bit about our vision and our strategy and, uh, and some of the things that we feel like God has led us to. And so we're going to do that next week. I would also say that if you're not uh, someone who calls Medina East home, if you're a guest with us this morning, even then, I think that next week is going to be a great week for you because if you're trying to figure out a little bit about what is this church, um, what do they believe, what's their vision, what's their heartbeat, next week is really going to help with that because you get a chance to sort of hear where we've been and where we're going and, uh, and maybe if you're looking for a place to call home, that might help you uh, determine that if, uh, if you're a person that's in that category. So next week, State of the Church, I'd encourage you not to miss it, um, whether you call Medina East Home or whether you don't. But this week, like I said, wrapping up a series that we started a couple weeks ago that we've been calling You Plus Hope. If you're just joining in for this series, basically the big idea is we've been talking about how Christmas uh, brings hope to us in real time. And we've been talking about how Christmas is way more than just a celebration of something that happened in the past. But really, if you think about it, Christmas is a profound declaration about God, about his character, about who he is, about how he interacts with us. And so if you were with us a few weeks ago, you might even remember we, we kind of launched the big idea for this whole series. And the big idea for this whole series was quite, quite simply just this. We said that God's past faithfulness secures our future confidence. That God's past faithfulness, the things that God has done in the past, his faithfulness displayed to us in past events, secures for us confidence that we can have today in who he is. We've been saying Christmas is a past event, right? It's, it's God's past faithfulness, and it secures for us a future confidence. See, Christmas tells us a lot about God. It tells us that God is with us. It tells us that God is for us. It tells us that God has not abandoned us. It tells us all of those things. And so we've been saying Christmas brings us hope. And so each week what we've been doing in the series then, We've been looking back at the Christmas story, and we've been talking very specifically about how Christmas brings us hope in real time and what that looks like. And so if you missed the past few weeks and you want to catch up on that, I'd encourage you to do it. Um, you can go to our website. You can either watch the uh, sermons previously, um, or you can uh, subscribe to our podcast, listen to it, the ride to work, 
uh, or when you jog or whatever, and you can catch up that way if you want to. But this week, we want to continue in this, and as we wrap it up, I want to look at another aspect of hope that Christmas brings, and I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles with me and look back again at the Christmas story. So if you've got your Bibles, let's, take, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be um, landing this morning, Matthew chapter 2. And I, let me just say that if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's totally cool. We have some for you. And you can just grab those, those black Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you and uh, turn to page seven, uh, I'm sorry, 676. That's where you're going to find Matthew chapter 2. And you can flip there um, to the Christmas story. Now, as you're flipping there, some of you might, may have noticed that in the past few weeks as we've been looking at the Christmas story, we've been really centering our attention to the Gospel of Luke. That's what we've been looking at. So there's four Gospels in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all kind of tell the story of Jesus. Two of those Gospels really kind of go in detail about the Christmas story, and that's Luke and Matthew. So we've been spending most of our time looking at Luke. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, if you're a Bible person, but when you look at, at the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke as compared to the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, um, they're talking about the same story, but they, they look at different aspects of the story. So um, Luke, I guess for back of a letter, uh, for back, lack of a better term, when you read the book of Luke, you, you almost see um, kind of a more optimistic view of the birth of Jesus. And so he kind of looks at the celebration that happened when Christ was born. So for example, in the angels in, in the Gospel of Luke, it talks about the Christmas story, um, they're, they're always proclaiming good news to people. They're showing up and they're saying, I have good news for you, Jesus is born. There's this, this kind of this celebratory aspect to the way that Luke talks about the Christmas story. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, in the Christmas story, everyone's singing all the time. And so Mary breaks out in a spontaneous song when she finds out about Jesus. Zechariah breaks out into spontaneous song, right? The angels uh, break out into spontaneous celebration. And so Luke almost reads more like a musical, right? Jazz hands and all, the whole bit. You, when you read Luke, that's kind of the idea. Well, when you read Matthew, same story, just from a little bit of a different angle, and Matthew really brings out, I guess, I guess for the lack of a better term again, kind of more of the dark side of the Christmas story. And, and so when the angels show up in Matthew, they're not really pronouncing good news. Most of the time they're warning and they're directing and they're telling people to not go that way and dodge this person because there's trouble or there's hardship. And so it gives us, again, it's the same story, but you get almost like the darker side of it in Matthew. And the reason I tell you that is because the passage we're going to go through today, you're going to see some of that. You're going to see some of the darker side of the Christmas story. All right, so let's jump into that together. Let's start here in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who's been born of the Jews, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. All right, so let's just pause there for a minute. So Matthew tells us Jesus is born, and after Jesus is born, here in Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced to a couple different characters. The primary character that we see there, the Bible tells us, is that this happened in the time of King Herod. Now, um, we've talked a little bit previously about King Herod. Uh, some of you may already know a little bit about King Herod. But just for review, this King Herod we're about to see in this story is the one who is really responsible. He's the main culprit behind all of the hardship and all of the darkness that we see in the Christmas story. He's kind of a bad dude. Now, this Herod, some of you might know this, this Herod was uh, Herod the Great. Um, Herod uh, is actually a title that's given to kings. And so there were several Herods during the time of Jesus and even beyond Jesus. The Herod that's referred to here is Herod the Great. And the reason he was called Herod the Great is because of the great things that he was known to do. He was known for a lot of great things that he accomplished. 
And, uh, and really, there's three aspects to his greatness. And I just want to kind of highlight those real quick. Herod the Great was known for being great in a few things. The first thing was this. He was known for his great political prowess. Um, there's a, if you're a historian or you're interested in history at all, a book that I would commend to you is by Josephus. He's a first century historian. He wrote a book called Antiquity of the Jews. He has a whole section on King Herod. He talks at length about this guy. And one of the things that he mentions about King Herod is that the reason he was called Herod the Great is because of his great political prowess. Right? Herod was an ambitious um, uh, kind of a, a, a leader, work his way to the top. He was constantly um, jockeying to get the highest seat. He did whatever it took. He was a, he was a, a strategist, so he would kind of strategize on how to maximize um, his own influence. And we're told uh, story after story from historians about his political prowess. He was politically savvy. He knew the right moves, and he knew how to work his way up to the top. So, for example, we're told that when Jesus was born, Herod was the king over Judea, which meant he was the king of the Jews, right? Well, history tells us that the way he got there is that he actually wasn't rightfully supposed to be in that seat, but he took it by force. He muscled his way into it. And so what he did was he went down to the Roman government, he sat before the Senate, and he pleaded a case that he should be the rightful king over Judea, that, he's, that he'd be more adequate for the job. And so we're told that what he did is he convinced the Senate and then he came up and he took Judea by force from a leadership group there called the Hasmoneans. And so he overtook uh, the, the leaders of Judea and kind of muscled his way in to become the king over the, the Jewish people there. So he had this incredible political prowess. He was constantly strategizing and forcing his way up to the top. History also tells us that when he was finally in the seat of being the king of the Jews, uh, when he was in that chair, that many of his subjects didn't like him. They hated him because of his forceful ways, because he kind of muscled his way in there. And so what he did was he, he took his wife and his child and he rejected them. And he took on a Hasmonean wife who was previously part of the dynasty that was ruling over Judea. And that was a complete political move because he was trying to gain the favor of the people. So we're told this guy was great. And one of the things that, that made him known as Herod the Great was his great political prowess. Very savvy, very strategic, very ambitious. The other thing he was known for, Herod was known for, was his great building projects. His great building projects. In fact, you can still go and see some of his great building projects to this day. Um, archaeology has preserved a lot of those things, but this is a guy who spent a lot of his life investing in these large-scale monumental building projects. So for example, he, re he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and he rebuilt it to uh, just an amazing kind of scale. It was about the size um, of a, of a modern-day American city block. It was huge. He, he spared no expense. It was beautiful. He built several palaces for himself. In fact, we're told that Herod, when he would undergo a building project, he would often pick the most difficult terrain to build on. And the reason he did that was because he was trying to show his dominance over Mother Nature. And he was trying to show that he was a king that was even more powerful than nature herself. And so he would build these things. He built an entire underwater system a uh, port city, and he would use this underwater concrete, which was like new technology back then. And so he was known for these huge things that he would do. In fact, one of the projects that he did was he built a palace for himself by taking two massive hills, pulling them together to make one mountain, and they called it the Herodian. And actually, I'll put a picture of it for you. You can actually go visit this. This is the Herodian. So he took these two hills, had a bunch of uh, slaves pull them together, into one mountain, and uh, this kind of became for him uh, one of his palaces. In fact, you guys might remember when Jesus said, if anyone has faith the size of a mustard seed, he can move mountains. Well, this is probably what Jesus had in mind. They were probably looking at this when he said that, right? 
And so Herod did that. And the reason he did that, historians believe, is once again to show his dominance over nature, but not simply to show his dominance over nature. He also built it higher than the temple. And uh, historians said he did that to show his dominance over God. So this is a guy who was preoccupied with immortal glory. He was constantly trying to, to, to achieve for himself a high reputation of being a noble king who could build um, long-lasting lifetime building structures. So he was known for his great political prowess. He was known for his great building projects. And then this is probably the biggest thing that he's known for to this day. The thing that King Herod is most known for is his great paranoia. He was greatly paranoid. And Josephus, I mean, he makes no bones about this. When you read about um, King Herod in, in, uh, in some of the, the, in the books of antiquity, it's incredible to read about some of the things he did. Not only would he oftentimes kill people who were enemies of him that would threaten his glory or his kingdom, he was also known for, for killing his own family members out of paranoia. So, for example, I told you that he, uh, that he dismissed his wife and his child so he could take on a Hasmonean wife. Well, we're told that uh, she had a brother that everyone loved, and he was so jealous of her brother, his brother-in-law, that he killed him. And then after he killed him, he got real paranoid that his wife was mad at him about that, which I don't know why she would be, you know. And, and so he killed her. And then because he was real paranoid that his kids would revolt against him, he killed them. Right? This, is, this guy was paranoid. And he would go to any length to try to, to try to silence the voice of anyone who was competing with his glory. He was always um, doing this. In fact, we're told that, uh, that when he died... Um, he actually married 10 women. He had 10 wives. And the reason he did that was because he wanted to secure for himself an heir so that his kingdom would not stop. He wanted his kingdom to go on forever. And so he wanted to ensure that he would have someone to pass it all down to. So he had 10 wives to do that. We're told that when he was on his deathbed, when Herod was on his deathbed, that he issued one last decree. And the decree he issued was this. He wanted the, the people who were under his authority, he told them, I want you to go and kill 100 noblemen in the Judea area. So that way, if people don't mourn me, they're mourning somebody. The day I die, people better be crying. That's basically what he said. And, and history tells us that the day he died, that those under his leadership didn't do it. They, they let, they, instead, they just were like, whatever, and there was a big party in the streets when this man died. So that's Herod the Great. He's known for being great, but great for all the wrong reasons. Political prowess, great building projects, and really, most of all, is paranoia. Right? Now, let's go back to our text here for a minute. And just kind of reading that now, let's look back at verse 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, look at this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. All right, now let me just ask you a question. Quick vote, all right? Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Knowing what we know about Herod now, after looking at that, how do you think Herod felt about the news of a new king in town? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not too excited, right? Not too happy about that. In fact, the Bible tells us, look at, look at his response in verse three. When King Herod um, heard this, he was disturbed, disturbed. Some of you have translations and say he was troubled. I think that neither of those go far enough. Um, in the original language, it literally means this. It means that they were, he was caused inward commotion. It took away his calmness of mind. The idea is he was paranoid. When he heard this, he was a reconciled about it about Jesus. And check this out. The Bible, it's interesting. The Bible tells us this. It says King Herod was, was disturbed. And then look at this. And all Jerusalem with him. Well, that's fascinating. Why was Jerusalem disturbed? Well, I'll tell you why, why they were disturbed. Because Herod was disturbed. And they knew that when Herod got upset, man, look out. 
He's going to start killing people. He might kill his family if you're not careful with this guy. He's like a loose cannon. You might set him off, you know. And so, and so they were all disturbed together in this. So what does Herod do? Well, out, we know inwardly he's a wreck. Watch what happens. He begins to go right to work. Verse 4, he calls a meeting. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. All right, so check this out. King Herod, the Bible tells us inwardly he's a wreck. Outwardly, however, he, he maintains his composure and he goes to work strategizing. This is what he would always do. And so he calls a meeting. He gets together all the Bible teachers, the Bible says, the chief priests and the religious leaders. This is the religious leaders at that time. Pulls them all together. Says, okay, guys, um, the Magi just came to me. Said the king of the Jews has been born. You know, the Messiah, the one that, that's been prophesied about, the one that your people have been waiting for, for like all of time. Yeah, yeah, okay, so he's born. Remind me again, where was that that he was going to be born? Just, just, just out of curiosity. Where was that again that he was going to be born? And look at their answer. I find this slightly troubling when I read this. Their answer was so fast. They knew it. They knew the answer. They're like, oh, the Messiah? Yeah, sure. Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. And they went on to quote from Micah chapter 5, which gives a prophecy about where the Messiah is going to be born. Like, everyone knows where the Messiah is going to be born. The reason that troubles me a little bit, and maybe this is a bit of a side note, but the reason it, 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 it kind of strikes me as strange is because here you have the religious leaders, right? The ones who, who study the Bible, the theologians. And you would think that these would be the guys who would be the most eager to find the Messiah. And yet, the Bible gives us no indication that when they heard that the Messiah was born, they made any effort at all to find him. You would think these guys would be ecstatic, and they'd be like, let's go, let's, you know, let's, everyone, let's get a caravan, let's go down to Bethlehem and see this long-expected Messiah. But the Bible shows us that they're not interested in that at all. They're indifferent about it. And that's a little troubling to me, maybe a little bit of a side point. So anyway, Herod has his meeting with the religious leaders, and then he goes out and he has another meeting, kind of a secret meeting. Look at verse 7. Then Herod called the, ma the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So he sits down with the Magi, and he says, Now, just out of curiosity, when exactly did that star appear? When exactly? Did you see that star? Okay, that's great. And he says, why don't you guys go down, why don't you guys go on down to Bethlehem, find him, and then when you find him, just come tell me, because I want to worship him too. Now, now, if you guys know this story, you know better than this. And if you know Herod, you know better than this. He's lying, right? He, what's he doing? He, inwardly, he is a wreck. Outwardly, he's pretending like, oh, you know, this is a good thing, and I, I want to come worship the thing that you want to come worship. You go find him, and I'll, and I'll be glad to come worship him. That's what I want to do. We know Herod wants to kill him. That's the real plan that he has in place. So the Bible says, verse 9, after they heard the king, after the Magi heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose uh, went, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, I love this, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. I love that. Some of you have translations that says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Here's a translation. When they saw where the Messiah was born, they were jacked up. They were so pumped. They were like, yes, overjoyed, exceedingly excited when they found Christ, is what it says. And check this out, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They saw Jesus for the first time. 
their response. They bowed down and they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and, their, and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Look, I, I should probably stop there and just tell you, maybe it's just me, but I'll just be honest with you guys. I love these magi. I love these guys. And if you know anything about their history and their story, it makes you love them more. Here's a group of guys. They're, uh, they're, they're magi. Um, some, I think some people call them the wise men. Basically, some, some songs call them kings. They're not kings. Right? They're, they're either wise men or they're magi. Basically, these are guys who are trained in a certain skill of divination who are from the Babylonian kingdom. Now, just so you get some idea of this, Babylon was a 900-mile journey from Jerusalem. So, so get this. These Babylonian magi, these guys were not Jewish. They were not religious guys. Okay? They didn't grow up in the church, basically. They're unchurched dudes. They probably didn't have the Bible. So they didn't, they didn't have the same knowledge that these religious leaders did. Yet, when they had even the slightest indication that the Messiah may have been born, the Bible tells us that they went on a journey, a 900-mile journey to find him. And they brought gifts with them. And when they finally found him, the Bible says, man, they broke down. And they worshipped him. And, and listen, here's the thing I love about these guys. These guys are genuine truth seekers. These are guys who say, man, if this is real, if this, if this whole thing about Jesus is true, we have to find out. And we'll go to any length. And the Bible even tells us from the very beginning in verse 1, the reason they were looking for Jesus was to worship him. That was what they were going for. We want to see him and we want to worship him because if this king exists, if this is true, then it demands my whole life. And I'm going to worship him. I love these guys. Love these guys. So here's what happens next. You guys know the story. The Bible says, that these guys bow down, they give Jesus his gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh, which I never really knew what those things were. But basically, those are um, kingly gifts. Those are gifts that you would give to royalty. So they give them to the king, they worship him. And the Bible says an angel shows up then. And the angel tells the magi, don't go back up to King Herod. Avoid him, because he's going to try to kill Jesus. And so they obeyed him, and they went a different way. And then the Bible says another angel shows up to Mary and Joseph and said, you guys need to get out of town, because Herod's about to do something terrible. And then verse 16 it tells us what Herod does. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Now the, outside, now the inside is coming outside. And uh, it says, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. So the Bible tells us that he was so furious, he was so troubled by the birth of Jesus, he was so threatened by it that he issued this decree that every child to and under, every male child in Bethlehem be slaughtered. Now Bethlehem, some of you know, is a very small town, very, very small. So my guess is there probably wasn't a ton of children who were killed in this event. But regardless of the number, this is a horrendous, terrible thing to do. And of course the story goes on, and in fact in the next couple of verses we see Herod eventually dies. After Herod dies, we're told that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph move back to Nazareth. Jesus grows Eventually, he does his ministry, starts his ministry, begins healing, performing miracles, doing incredible things, teaching. The Bible tells us that he's crucified. Then he raises from the dead. No one saw that coming. And then the Bible tells us that he comes back and he begins his church. And now, 2,000 years later, here we are, reading once again, just like we do every year, the account of the birth of King Jesus. And we're here again. Listen, if there is one thing that this story really concretes in our thinking, 
God's past faithfulness at Christmas secures our future hope. If there is one thing that this story instructs us of that we see so practically, it's this. I put it this way in my notes. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. Here's what this story tells us. Jesus is the true king. He's the real king. And his kingdom is unstoppable. Jesus Christ is the real king. And his kingdom is unstoppable. We have such an incredible example of that in this story. Jesus Christ is the true king and his kingdom is unstoppable. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus Christ is the true king and there is nothing that, that human ambition, that worldly power, that paranoid kings can do to stop the kingdom that he initiated. You guys, the Bible, the Bible is replete with verse after verse and prophecy after prophecy about a kingdom that's gonna start and the king is gonna come and his kingdom will never end. I could give you multiple examples. I'll give you one, all right? Luke chapter one, verse 33, it says this. Jesus will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Never end. What's that saying? Here's what it's saying. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Kings will come and go. Dictators will claim great glory and appear to have incredible fame. But they will all fall because the only king that will remain is Jesus. Jesus is the true king and his kingdom goes on forever and forever. And, and this is one example of history's many examples of the Herods and the Caesars and the Romes and the Egypts and, and all the kingdoms, the Babylons, all the kingdoms who claim to be the ultimate power who are now today nothing. And it's all proof to us of this incredible truth that Jesus Christ is the true king and his kingdom is unstoppable. Right, so here's the question then. If Christmas tells us that, if that past faithfulness of God secures for us a future confidence that Christ is the true king and that his kingdom endures forever, what do we do with that exactly? How does that change us? What is that supposed to do in our hearts and what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think, I think if that's true, that there's really only three reactions that we can have and we see all three of them here in this passage. And so let me just kind of go through them all, all right? I think the three that we see here, the first one obviously is King Herod. Right, we see King Herod's response in this passage. Well, who is King Herod? Well, you guys know King Herod is a guy who took the same news. Um, in fact, I'll throw it up here on the PowerPoint. He's a guy who took the same news about, the, about Jesus being the king of the Jews, and it was met on his part. It was met with rejection. It was met with um, apprehension. It was met with uh, a threatening. He was threatened by it. And Herod went to every length to try to silence the name of Jesus Christ in his life. Went to every length to snuff out the name of Jesus Christ in the history books. Herod's response when he heard that Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, had arrived was to shake his fist at him in rebellion. The second response that we see in this passage, and I actually think that in some ways this is actually more frightful than the first response, is the religious leaders. The religious leaders, what, what was their response? Here's a group of people who knew what the Bible said, who knew what was taught about the Messiah. They knew it all. They probably grew up in Sunday school. They, they, they had learned this. They knew this verse from the time that they were little kids, right? And yet, for some reason, they were indifferent about it. it the, the truth of, of God's word never went past their minds down into their hearts. These guys weren't looking to worship anything. For them, the, the, the Bible and their religion was nothing more than another aspect of their life, but it wasn't the centerpiece of their affection. And then, of course, the third you see is the Magi. Who were the Magi, man? Magi were genuine seekers. These were guys who were longing to worship. These were guys who went to every extent to find out the truth about Jesus so that they could bow down and surrender their lives to him. I think when, when, when I tell you 
that Jesus is the true king and his kingdom endures forever, I think that we can respond in one of these three ways. For some of us in this room, maybe, and my, my question to you is which, which one of these areas do you tend to gravitate towards? Which one of these would you say that you're most likely category you're in? For some of you this morning, you're Herod, right? That's you. And when you hear the name of Jesus Christ, you want to do everything in your power to silence the name of Christ in your life. You have your plans, you have your, your uh, agenda, and you have your life plan, and Jesus, quite honestly, is a distraction to all of that. Because if Jesus Christ is king, that means you can't be king. And that's a problem for you. Because you want to run your life the way you want to run it. You don't want to share the glory, whatever it might be. And for, for many of, for some of you who are in this room today, you might fall into this category where you would say, I'm like Herod. When the name of Jesus is brought up, I want to do everything to quiet it. I, I resist Christ with every fiber of my being. Some of you might be in that category. Now, my guess is, we're, you know, this is church at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday after Christmas. My guess is if you're in that category, you're probably not in this room, right? Because most people who are in that category don't go to church. But I'm not naive enough to believe that there aren't some of you who are in here today who are shaking your fist against God. And when you hear this news that Jesus is the true king and that his kingdom endures forever, it frustrates you. It threatens you because it means you have to change something that's the case, so you're not willing to change. The other thing I want to say about this, by the way, is that as it relates to the Herods, I think we're, you and I, we're probably pretty quick to say, that's not me, that's not me. I don't hate Jesus, I love Jesus, right? I, I really care about him. I think the truth is, all of us, if we look in our own hearts, we have Herodian tendencies, right? We have tendencies, we have areas of our life where we are unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. We have areas of our life where we're not wanting to worship, we try to silence the voice of God in those areas. My guess is that when I say that, I don't even need to say much. You already know what I'm talking about. For some of you, it's your marriage. For some of you, it's your sexuality. For some of you, it's your finances. For some, I mean, you, you know what it is, but for some of you, your whole life is, you're like, yeah, I love Jesus. I want to worship Jesus, but there's like this one area over here. We just don't go there. Jesus isn't allowed in that room. He's not allowed. To, that's my Herod area, okay? And we all have a Herodian tendency inside of us. And so we see that here. When we hear that Jesus is the true king, and that his kingdom will endure forever, it has to mean something. And for some of us, our response is to be a Herod. For some of us, our response is to be like the religious leaders. And uh, man, this is, for, and I think this is dangerous. And I'll be honest, I see this in my own heart a lot of times. For some of us, look, the Christmas story, Jesus, the king, the camp, we're like, I know that. I know that. I grew up in the church. We memorized that. I could recite John three sixteen to you and the Christmas story, we know that. We know all the details. Yeah, you know it. You know it. But you're not worshiping it. You don't long to worship King Jesus. For some of you, man, I think it's really dangerous. For some of us, religion is a part of our lives. But Jesus is not the center of our lives. It's not the, he's not the one that we're seeking to worship. For, for some of us, man, like, you know, we're like, yeah, if you gave me a card and it said, like, check one. And I, I would check Christianity. Like, I'm pro-Jesus, you know. But if you looked at your heart, your heart doesn't long to worship him. It doesn't long to praise him. It doesn't long to lay down your life before him and call him the king of the universe, which he rightfully is, right? and the king of your life, which he rightfully should be. For some of us, we get so caught up in the week-to-week, the -week, go to church, read my Bible. The truth just becomes some static thing that sits in our mind and it doesn't penetrate down into our hearts. For some of us, Maybe, quite honestly, the area that we sympathize with most is the Magi. The Magi. Here's a group of genuine seekers. 
Guys who will go to any length to know the truth about Jesus. Travel thousands of miles bringing gifts to him because they want to worship him. For some of you, the deepest pursuit of your heart, not perfectly, but honestly, the deepest pursuit of your heart is to know Christ, to worship him, to, have, to live a life in full submission to him. Look, for some of you this morning, you're investigating Jesus. And when I say, by the way, when I say investigating Jesus, I don't mean dabble. It's not what I'm talking about. There's a difference. I don't mean like, well, I'm kind of interested in Jesus if it happens to come up. I'm kind of fascinated with the whole Jesus thing when I feel like it. For some of you, you are really investigating Jesus. You haven't made a decision for Christ, but you're like, look, if this is true, I have to know. I gotta know. Because if Jesus is really the true king and his kingdom never ends, then that means stuff's gotta change. That means that I can't just live as if that's some kind of haphazard truth. Like My life needs to be centered around that, if that's true. And for some of you, you're investigating, man. You're trying to find out, is this Jesus real? And let me just say, man, the Magi give us such hope because what we see with the Magi is this, is that when you seek, you will find. When you genuinely seek, and I'm not talking about dabbling, I'm not just talking about seeking for the sake of seeking, I'm talking about really looking for answers. If that's you, the Magi give us hope because they found them. Because the Bible talks about this so often. Jesus says, if you draw near to me, I'm going to draw near to you. You draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. If you ask, I will hear you. If you knock, I will answer. If you seek, you will find me. Because those are promises that if you're a genuine seeker looking for the truth about Christ, you will find it. God will allow your heart to see that. Listen, here's the one thing that I know is true about all three of these categories of people and about us in this room. Here's what I know is true. Honestly speaking, every single one of us, at the end of our lives, we are simply going to be, if Jesus is really the king and his kingdom is unstoppable, we are simply going to be footnotes. That's all we are, footnotes in the story of King Jesus. That's it. That's all we are. Think about it for a minute. All of these guys, right, whether it's Herod or the religious leaders and the Magi, all of these guys ended up just being footnotes in this little story about Jesus. And let's be honest, you guys, our lives are brief. The Bible says that we are vapors. The Bible says that our lives are breath, that we're here and we're gone. And because of that, we're just a footnote. His, his kingdom endures forever. It's all about him. This is where the thing is going. Like the Bible says at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like That's the end of all things. And so if that's where this thing is going, that means that each one of us, our lives are just a little footnote in his story. My question is, what kind of footnote are you going to be? Think about it. Think about Herod. How ironic is it that Herod wanted to be known really for a few things, and he worked so hard to try to secure for himself these things. He wanted to be known for his immortal glory. He wanted to be, man, I got to cough so bad. Can you guys hear that? I'm going to take care of this, all right? Thank you. It was like been bothering me for the last 10 minutes. Jeez. Sorry about that. Tis the season, I guess. So if you're in the front row, I'm sorry if you're sick next week. My apologies. Okay, so. But you think about, like, think about Herod for a minute. The things he wanted to be known for. What did he want to be known for? He wanted to be known for immortal glory. He wanted his name to be renowned, his glory to be renowned. He wanted to be known for being a powerful king that presided over the people and the people loved him. He wanted to be known for his building projects building projects that lasted forever, a triumph over nature. And the thing that he really wanted to happen more than anything is he wanted to rule over and to silence the name of Jesus Christ. Now here's the ironic part. What is Herod actually known for? Here's what he's actually known for. He's known for his buildings all right. 
but he's known for um, ancient ruins. You can go visit these things, but they're rubble now, right? You need an archaeologist to point out for you what's what because you don't recognize it. Yeah, and he's, he's not known as a king who, who gained the favor of the people. What he's really known for is his paranoia. He's known for the horrendous things that he did, killing his family. He's known for these terrible things that he, that he did to try to secure his own glory. And the thing that he's the most known for, you guys, the thing that Herod is the most known for, the only reason we're even talking about Herod this morning is because he's just a small little footnote in the annals of King Jesus. That's, that's why we're talking about We wouldn't be talking about him if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's all he is, is a footnote. And that's what the religious leaders are, and that's what the magi are, and that's what we are. We're footnotes in the story of the king. We're just names in the credits. At the end of the movie, it's about Christ. So what are you going to be known for? Are you going to be the Herod? Are you going to be the religious leader? Or are you going to be the magi? Because my hope is that if you're a Herod in this room, that you would embrace the grace of God. For some of you, you find yourself this morning fighting God. It's a hard place to be in. And the good news is that the grace that's extended to everyone was extended to Herod. Herod just rejected it. But you can embrace it. You can embrace this king and fall on your knees and worship him and make him the center of your life. If you're, if you're the religious leader who you know the truth, but it's, it's not getting down to the core of your being, maybe you just want to take some time and ask God, pray to him, Lord, show me, help me to, to, to make this more than just cerebral knowledge, but enter into the throne room of my heart and I can worship you. And for some of us, my prayer is that all of us will be like the Magi who seek after Christ, that it's the ambition of our life to worship him and to praise him and we go to any length to make him the centerpiece of our life. Jesus Christ is the true king and his kingdom is unstoppable. And it's because of that past event of Christmas that we have secured for us this future hope. We can bow and worship the king. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for securing for us this story uh, that we find in the Christmas account. It's awesome because, um, Lord, it, it, it's not only a, a testimony about your power and your glory and your promises, but it's also a testimony about your deep love and care and concern for us. Lord, I, I pray even right now, Lord, that you would confront the Herodian tendencies in each and every single one of us. Spirit, would you speak to us even right now? Lord, what areas of our heart are we unwilling to surrender? Speak to us and tell us, Father. Show it to us. Lord, the truth is that some of us wiggle because we know we don't want, there's places we do not want to go. We don't want you to go. But Father, it's in those places that we need you the most. God, the truth is that when we live in rebellion against you, the creator of the universe, that we live in disharmony. When we live in harmony with the creator, we worship you as, as God, as you are. Man, we find true peace because that's how you've created us. So Lord, I pray that you would fix our hearts, make us more like the Magi. Help us to, to long to worship you, to make it the pursuit of our lives to find you. God, I pray for the genuine seeker, the person who's not dabbling, but is like genuinely looking for answers. Oh God, I pray they'd find them. I pray you'd reveal yourself to them. And that like the Magi, that they would be overjoyed, that they'd be so excited upon finding you. 
So Christ, thanks for your word and thanks for the time that we're able to get into it. It's convicting to us, it's challenging, it's life-changing and it's molding. I pray it'd be more than just information. I pray that it'd be transformation. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.